Well, hello again. Once again, welcome to those of you who are joining us online and to those of you who have come in since the start of the service. I'm so glad you were able to make it. Despite the weather and everything else that's going on, I'm so glad you're here. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here. And we've been in a series where we've been talking about the seven deadly sins, which is not actually a concept from the Bible. That idea, the seven deadly sins, is not a biblical concept. But it's an idea from Christian tradition, from Christian history, where we have taken certain sin lists that are in the Bible and tried to sort of simplify them and group sins together to make them a way that's more manageable for us to deal with in our lives, something that we can work on. Last week, we preached on the deadly sin of gluttony, which was a very interesting experience for me as a pastor because, well, okay, this book is like pretty well defined, right? How many, how many churches do you think there are in the world and there's only, there's only so many passages. Like, this book gets preached a lot, all the time, and the idea that a pastor would preach a sermon that people haven't heard on that topic before is very, very odd. So, like, that last week I preached gluttony, and people were like, I've never heard a sermon on gluttony before. That was really cool for me. This week I'm preaching on lust, which is, like, the opposite problem. Like, who hasn't heard a sermon on lust in their life? Right? Like, that's, that's kind of the, really? Okay, all right. So, so this is kind of going to be a, bit, a little bit interesting. I hope, it's, I hope this is helpful for you today. I, I think that we found some things that are going to be helpful, some things that are going to be practical in our lives, help us to get some, some fresh understanding on this. Um, I, I do need to offer a disclaimer. We are preaching about lust, and this is going to be a sermon for the grown-ups. Like, this, this week right here, this is why Kids Zone exists. If you have a child who is watching online with you or who is sitting in here with you and uh, you haven't had the talk, that's, that's going to be on you today. Um, we're going to be referencing some ideas and some things that don't normally get talked about in church. And so I just need you to know that's what's going on. So with that being said, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We gather around it, God, to love you, to be more like you, so that we can shine your light in the world, God. Pray that you would speak through me. I pray that you would work through what's going on here into the hearts of all of these people who are gathered in this building and who are gathered to watch online. Pray, Lord, that you would be working in the soil of our hearts to make us ready to receive and that this word which goes out is going to be planted deep and reap a great harvest. In your name we pray. Amen. So the sin of lust is one that I find frustrates our expectations. Largely because we want to minimize it, right? Lust is so common, it's the sort of thing that we want to make less of a big deal. And first, the thing that we want to say is that all sin is equal, right? We want to say that, well, all sin is the same, right? We're all equally sinful before God. And that's, that's okay, sorry. It's not true that all sin is the same, it is true that we're equally sinful, or at least we all stand equally condemned before a good and holy judge, if not for the intervention of Jesus, but it is not true that all sin is equal. Let's open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 12, and if you have a Bible with you today, you might as well stay there. I'm going to reference a few other things, but this is kind of the main chunk of Scripture where we're going to be. Starting chapter 12, starting in, sorry, chapter 6, starting in verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. 
I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The Bible separates sexual sin from all other sin. Even though we'd like to look at sexual sin and say it's not that bad, it is being separated out. Um, I should also mention, because of the context that the Bible was written in, a whole lot of what we're going to be reading today is going to sound very much like it's directed directly at men, but it, and which, you know, it is, and it's not wrong, but this is also for women. Lust, all of these things, these are also problems for women. I don't want you to think that this sermon isn't for you or isn't about us or is mostly just for the person you're sitting beside. I want us to remember that this is an everyone problem. So, the Bible separates sexual sin from all other sin. We can, and actually, we can sort of get on board with that too, right? It's, it's kind of convenient because now, now if we're, if we're separating sin, well, now we can stratify our sexual sin too because, like, obviously adultery is the big one, right? Like, cheating. Surely, fooling around on your marriage is worse than having a one-night stand as a single person. And then surely, engaging in <coughs> self-care is, isn't as bad as having another person. Or that going to see a strip show in real life is probably worse than watching something on a screen. Stratifying it sounds convenient. But again, the Bible undercuts and frustrates our expectations. Because again, we want to make it sound like we're not that bad. But in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28, we get some words from Jesus. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So on the one hand, you have the Bible separating sexual sin out from all the other sins, but on the other hand, the Bible collapses all the sexual sin into the same category. I said in the introduction that the seven deadly sins are not an idea from the Bible. Though sin lists are found in the Bible, well, lust and sexual immorality feature prominently in those lists, the ones that are in the Bible. Here are five sin lists from the Bible. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 22. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. I don't know if you noticed, but sexual sin shows up in three times in that list. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, just before the passage that we read right at the beginning. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, three times sexual immorality shows up. It shows up four times in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. The very first thing listed in the list from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 6, where it says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. It shows up again in Revelation 21, verse 8. And in Colossians 3, verse 5, I'm trying to speed along here because I know this is a lot of Scripture. Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This is not an exhaustive of all of the sin lists from the New Testament. It's not even exhaustive of the sin lists where sexual sin appears. But I think you get the idea. In fact, there's a really interesting story from Acts chapter 15 called the Council of Jerusalem where Paul, who is a relatively new believer at this point, goes to meet with the other apostles in Jerusalem to talk about his ministry to the Gentiles and, frankly, to make sure they, they want to make sure that he's not preaching heresy. So they end up writing a letter of recommendation for Paul, and in it they make this surprising step of basically minimizing the requirements of the law for Gentile believers. They don't want them worrying about the Sabbath or ritual washing. They don't bring up the Ten Commandments. Look what they do say. Acts chapter 15, verses 28 to 29, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Even in this letter where they're saying, look, here's the bare minimum, sexual immorality still makes the list of forbiddances. All of this to say, this matters. If you think that honoring God with your life is important, then you don't get to turn around and say that sexual sin isn't a big deal or somehow not sin. So, what do we do about it? If you've still got your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 6, you can flip to probably the next page for 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the chapter that takes place immediately following the strong denouncement of sexual immorality from 6, 12 to 20, some of which we've already read today. Chapter 7, on the other hand, is about how to handle the sexual urges which God gave us, but which must not master us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. 
Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul knows us. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul's answer to lust and the sexual urge is, get married! Now, there's a lot more to marriage than sex. Like, please don't get married to someone only and just because you're horny. That is not going to end well. I told you this was a sermon for the grown-ups. But I think it's important to note that Paul is not vilifying the sexual desire as a reason to get married. In fact, the Bible speaks highly of marriage and of sex in marriage. Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, is an entire book of the Bible that is literally erotic poetry. It celebrates the marital act. In my Bible, it's six pages long, which, like, in the context of the whole Bible, that's not a lot. But at the same time, that's like 20 minutes of reading. And it's all about sex and desire and describing and celebrating each other's bodies. Date night idea? No? Okay. The book of Proverbs also spends time celebrating sex and marriage. Proverbs chapter 5 has a lengthy portion that is a warning against prostitution and adultery, which is not dissimilar to Paul's advice that we just read. But then... Proverbs 5 says, starting in verse 15, blah, 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 blah. starting in verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your, your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Proverbs chapter 30, starting in verse 18. There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. It is wild to me that the Bible would use language like this to talk about sex. It's awe and wonder. It's taking in the beauty of nature and majesty of the created order and also sex. Do you ever see a sunset or a field of flowers and it's just so beautiful and you can't help but praise God for the wondrous things that he's made? Proverbs is using that language to talk about sex. I really wanted to take a bit of time to talk about how the Bible celebrates marriage because the second way that Paul gives to deal with lust can make marriage seem like a second best option or a disappointment. Paul starts 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with this thought, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He then spends some time talking about other aspects of this issue. 
But he picks up this thought about staying unmarried again in verse 25. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is a good idea, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they did not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the thing of, things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. I had an email exchange with Blondie, our new office manager, on Friday. She was wanting me to send her my notes for today, and the sermon just wasn't quite done. In fact, I was about at this point right here. I was pretty close, so I sent her what I had, and then I said, I just need to write one more section about Paul's recommendation to stay single so that we can focus on God and ministry. But first, I have to go be a parent for a while. And it was like, how's that for ironic? Paul is exactly right. When you're married, when you have a family, you have a lot more going on, and your attention is divided. This is why we encourage our young people to go on missions trips, do discipleship programs, serve, because it gets a lot harder when you're older and you've taken on all these other responsibilities. But maybe in there is the assumption that we need to address. We as a Christian community, and I don't, I don't mean Elam in particular, I do mean Christians in general, assume marriage and family. Paul does not. Paul says it is better to stay unmarried if you, can, if you can do that without falling into sexual sin. We need to work on making it not only socially acceptable, but socially normal for Christians to choose to not get married. Again, without falling into sin, right? Important caveat. Can't emphasize that enough. But maybe that friend or your adult child or uncle or aunt doesn't actually need you to set them up with the nice boy or girl from the grocery store. Maybe God has given them what they need, and they're right where He needs them. I, uh, I think this sermon has been going for a while, so I want to wrap up by talking about what we can do to fight lust in our lives. Whether you're married or unmarried, lust is a major problem in our society. As they say in marketing, sex sells, and I suspect you won't make it through your drive home from church 
without seeing an ad that uses a picture of an attractive person to try to sell you some product or service. So the advice for how to deal with it, as with all sin, the first answer is to get really close to God. No matter what sin it is, I find that if I'm engaged with sin, it hurts my ability to be close with God. But on the flip side, when I'm feeling close to God, sin isn't enticing because I don't want to jeopardize my connection to Him. I know I basically get up here every week and remind us all how important it is that we stick close to Jesus, but like, that really is the answer. As Philippians 4.8 says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is noble or admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Keeping focus on the right things, God, keeps you from focusing on the wrong things. Okay, but more practically, whether you're married or not, how do you avoid temptation? The Bible's answer is very simple. It's three letters. Run. Just run. Don't get into those situations. We already read 1 Corinthians 6.18 at the start of the service, and that verse begins, flee from sexual immorality. Run! Matthew 5, which we already read part of earlier, says much the same. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right? That's what we read before. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Run. Cut those things off. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you literally disfigure your body, but, I mean, if you think you're in that deep, I, I guess maybe don't rule it out, but that's not, that's not what I'm saying. But, like, how about if there's somewhere that you go on Friday nights and you always seem to get into trouble there? How about if you just stop going there? Cut that off. How about if there's a time of night where you realize that your resistance gets really weak and that you need to walk away from the TV or the computer because you're getting tempted? How about there's an app on your phone that leads you to that temptation, one that leads you to connect with other people or one that leads you to look at things that you shouldn't. Maybe it's time to get rid of that app. Cut it off. Run from those things. Find those places in your life where that sin peeks through and cut them out. This is not a new battle. With the advent of the internet and everything that's come with it, we're certainly fighting the battle in a new way. But we are far from the first Christians to have to be concerned with and deal with lust in our culture. But Jesus calls us, just as He has always called, that He has called us out of our culture and into His presence to be His people living for Him. He is gracious and compassionate. And whether this is an area where you're currently walking in victory or an area where you're knee-deep in mire, keep fighting. Keep going to the throne of grace. Keep receiving forgiveness. You are loved. You are accepted just as you are. If you need prayer for this issue or for any other, 
I'm going to be behind the sound booth today with a prayer team, some of our awesome volunteers after the service. We would love to pray with you. And especially if you're hearing all of this and you're realizing that you need to start that journey with God, or maybe you need to restart it, today is a great day. We can go through life regretting the things that we should have done a long time ago, or we can decide to get started today. If you're ready to start your journey as a follower of Jesus, we'd love to pray with you after the service. Let's close in prayer, and then worship team's going to have one more song for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words that you've had for us today. Lord, we want to be your people. Today, we've focused on the sin of lust and on the danger that it presents to us, Lord, and the, the solutions that you give us in your word to deal with it the ways that we can resist and fight and and be your people the way that you intended us to be. God, help us to remember those, not just today as we're going home, but all throughout this week, God. Bring these things to our memory when we need them, when we're feeling weak, when we're feeling tempted, God. Bring these things to our minds. Help us to be yours. Keep us in your heart. Keep us in your grasp. We know no one can take us out of your hand. We need you, God. We love you. Make us into your people. In your name we pray. Amen.